what do you think reveals to them and to others the fine person that you are? How about pulling up in your new Ferrari? How about sporting a buff body that even men's health would give two thumbs up for? How about a national championship ring on your finger? How about being able to answer the question all men seem to ask first, where do you work, with a response, I'm the vice president at Disney. How about being introduced with a, a DR before your name? Or three Roman numerals after your name. How about being introduced as a graduate of Harvard? How about being able to drop a name of your good friend, George Bush? How about having at your side a striking wife whose outer beauty is surpassed by her inner beauty and her love and devotion to you and your family. Now I know this is going to sound a little old-fashioned, but I'd like for you to indulge old Arch for just a moment. From another generation, another era, when the dinosaurs walked the earth. In the Bible, there's a very interesting verse written by the Apostle Paul. Now, this is a complicated passage, but the verse itself, the last part of the verse, stands alone. It's an argument Paul is using to make his point. I don't want to make his point this morning. I just want to call attention to the last part of the verse. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, and this is what it says. For a man indeed ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now, I know this verse would turn the stomach of most any self-respecting feminist. But in God's ideal, he created a female to be the glory of her male counterpart in marriage. That is, a wife is to glorify her husband. Now, generally speaking, she has been blessed with physical beauty that surpasses her husband. Clearly, her physical beauty should be superseded by the honor and the devotion she gives to her husband and her family, by the weightiness of her character, and by the love, joy, and peace that constantly radiates from her person. In the same passage, and in the same manner, it says that man is the image of God and the glory of God. Two things are stressed about man. First, he is the image of God. And second, he is the glory of God. Now, let's look briefly at both of these statements about man. And this is all in preparation to the passage we'll be looking at in John this morning. But it's an important part of where we're going. Now, bear in mind that except in passages where differences are being emphasized, that the Bible includes both males and females together under the man label. 
When you read in the Bible that we're speaking about man in a generic sense, it's speaking about men and women, about males and females. The only time that they are designated is if they are calling attention in the Bible to differences, and there are obviously differences. First, statement that is made here about man, and that means male and female, is man is the image of God. Now this comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the face of the earth. Man was created in the image of God. Essentially, this means that man is to resemble God. God created man to resemble himself, if you will. Now, many people like to debate what the image of God in man is. They'll talk about moral sensitivity or personality or uh, the list goes on. But I think this is to miss the entire point of what the scripture is saying. And most people would tell you that the image of God is certainly not man's body. I think that's where we miss it. Because the scriptures emphasize that man is the image of God. In his whole being. This means that between man and God, there exists a living correspondence. For instance, God created man with a body so that he could in part experience what God experiences. He created him with, the, with eyes so that he could see in part what God sees. With ears so he could hear in part what God hears. With a tongue so that he could speak as God speaks. God created him with feet so that he could impart move as God moves. He created him with a mind so that he could think as God thinks. He created him with a heart so that he could impart feel as God feels. He created man with a will so that he could impart act as God acts. There's no one thing in us that is the image of God. We are the image of God. But why did God create man in his image? And that brings us to the second thing. And beginning to understand the bigger and broader picture of why we're here on this earth to begin with. He created us in his image and he says, man is the glory of God. He is the image of God first. He is the glory of God second. Man was created for the purpose of representing and revealing God on earth. Of exercising authority over the earth in such a way that God is glorified. Now, how does this translate into everyday life? Well, God gave him a body so that he could worship God. He gave him eyes so that he could see and appreciate what God has wrought, what God has done. He gave him ears so that he could hear the words of God and the voice of God. He gave him a mind so that he can part, in part think and reason God's thoughts and understand what God has said. He gave him feelings so that he can feel in part as God feels. 
He gave him a tongue so that he could talk with God and praise God. He gave him feet and an upright posture so that he could walk before God with his head erect and realize that he is not a lower form of life. But God created him for fellowship and to reign over his kingdom, over his earth, and to represent him on the earth and to glorify him. Man was created in the image of God to glorify God, to honor God, to magnify God, to radiate the person of God, to hold up the, the character of God. His whole life is to be spent representing and revealing God, not himself. His life is to be a statement, not about his success, but about God's success and God's works. Now these wonderful concepts would be so easy for all of us to grasp if it wasn't for just one major problem, sin. Since our first parents disobeyed and rebelled against God, sin has branded every man, and that means male and female, a sinner in, uh, in God's eyes. The Bible says this, it says, all have sinned. And what the conclusion is, they've come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Every, every man, male and female, is a sinner, striving to serve themselves rather than God. Representing themselves rather than God. Revealing themselves. Speaking about themselves, loving themselves, honoring themselves, full of themselves, making a statement about themselves, glorifying themselves. That's the nature of man. We call it human nature. Except for one man. A man who had a burden for the glory of God like no other man that has ever lived and graced this earth. I'd like for you to either look on to the note sheet or turn with me to John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. And this is what we read as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with him before, or with you before the world was. And when Jesus prayed these words, and this is indeed a prayer, there was clearly one thing that was consuming his attention. And you can see it right here. The glory of God. When it came to himself, there was one thing in particular that he longed for. The glory of God. 
Do we share that burden? Are we glorying or longing to glorify God as men, male and female? We should. How could we ever really come to appreciate what Jesus prayed on this night? How does the glory of God become an all-important concern in the life of a man or a woman? Notice that our Lord's concern for the glory of God in verse 1 and verses 4 and 5 of this passage frames words about eternal life. That's in verse 3. And about those who, to whom he has given eternal life in verse 2. Now I want to ask you a question. It's the most important question any serious student of the Bible and who comes to this passage would need to ask. And that is, what is the connection between this? Talking about the glory of God one minute and talking about eternal life the next. How do these things connect? Let's take a look at the background leading into this. All of this took place on the night just before he would be arrested, tried, crucified. Jesus had spent most of the evening in an upper room talking with his disciples. Do we have that map up there by chance that, that I have in there? There we go. Jesus spent most of his time there at place number one. That would be the upper room in the middle of Jerusalem, somewhere in that vicinity. And then... We read that after he, in chapter 15, after he presented uh, chapter 14, he made a transition. And they left the room and they moved out. Now, some have postulated that maybe he stopped two times or three times. I would think that perhaps he had moved out and had moved about just this side of where it says number three. And there he was at the side of the temple looking up at the Kidron Valley and the hills on the other side, seeing all the various grape orchards and, and, or grape vines and the various orchards there. And he spoke the parable of the vine and the branches in John 15 and then went on to John 16 and talked about the world and how the world will persecute believers and will persecute his disciples. And if they hated him, they'll hate the disciples as well. And then he concludes that chapter. And then he begins to lift up his eyes and pray. Now this is before he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll come to that in the future. He first experienced at the hands of the world a world full of hatred. He first taught them in the upper room and then proceeded to the spot somewhere like we've noticed. And then after he finished his teaching, he concluded with these words. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The world would bring all its injustice and its power and its brutality to kill Jesus and to try to destroy his disciples and the movement they were a part of. But Jesus never saw himself as a victim. He never saw his disciples as a victim. Rather, he saw them as victors. And there's a big difference. If you, if you ever played sports, you know there's a difference between a team that seems to be defeated before it begins 
because they're scared of the opposition and knowing that they're going to be beat or a team that believes they can win. And clearly, Jesus knew they were victors. Now, why could he speak so confidently in the face of what was coming? Prayer. Which speaks to us about the problems that we face. Many of us here are struggling with some serious problems. And when these problems sweep over us like a tsunami, we can face them as victors because of prayer. Because we have a God we can go to, as Glenn was mentioning earlier in his prayer, a God that we can go to and who longs to hear from us and who will show us grace and mercy and help in time of need, the Bible says. John 17 is a prayer, friends. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed. And He prayed it audibly in the presence of His disciples. So they could learn from what He was praying. And He speaks to His Father about four burdens. The first burden was the glory of God. Verses 1 to 5. The second burden would be the protection of His disciples in verses 6 to 19. The third burden would be the oneness of those who would become or believe through His disciples. That's you and me. And the fourth burden would be that all whom the Father had given Him may behold His glory and experience His love. Nineteen times in this prayer, Jesus uses the word world. The world was a very threatening place. And in the face of the threat, our Lord Jesus Christ began to pray. And as He had done so many times before, He prayed to His Father. Only this time He prayed audibly, so they could hear Him. And our Lord was seeking to minister to them and comfort them that as they heard this prayer that He was praying... For himself and for them and for those who would believe through them. That they might be encouraged, strengthened, and able to realize that this was a battle that they could win. And they would win with God. Again in verse 6, 16, 23, the very last part of chapter 16, he concluded his teaching that evening with the words, Be of good cheer, literally cheer up. Have overcome the world, we will win. And the next thing we read is chapter 17, verse 1, and it says, Jesus spoke these words and is in the text in the New Testament. I don't know why it wasn't put in our translation, but I've substituted it in there. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? that your Son also may glorify you. How? Inasmuch as you have given Him authority over all flesh, in order that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father... Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify your Son. That your Son also may glorify you. 
clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, when it came to praying for himself, was burdened about one thing in these five verses, the glory of God. Being glorified as the Son of God and glorifying his Father God. The glory of God is clearly in the forefront of his mind, a glory that he, the Son of God, fully expected to share in with his Father. What does it mean to glorify? What does it mean to glorify? The glory of God and to glorify God are difficult terms for most of us. We don't use these terms in everyday speech. These are the kind of things you hear when you come to church, like you're hearing right now. And I can see some of you are sleeping. I won't mention who they are, but I know there's one there over there. Well, anyhow. Talking about the glory of God. Man, what a drag. Can't we get something, something interesting here? However, if we're going to really appreciate what our Lord is asking for here, we need to relate the glory of God to life. The word translated glory or glorify here is the word doxa, from which we would get our word the doxology. You've heard of that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The fundamental idea of doxa in scripture is one of brightness and splendor and radiance. But it also has a sense in a more figurative meaning of to honor or praise or exalt or lift up or magnify someone, especially God. Now, how was God glorified? As we saw at the beginning this morning, God is glorified whenever His thoughts, His attitudes, His actions, His words, His works... His character or His name are honored, praised, exalted, lifted up. In our everyday speech, I would use phrases like this in place of glorify. We often talk about people trying to make a statement. A person goes out and buys a certain car. And it seems that maybe they have the intention of making a statement. Particularly when they put on the license plate, eat your heart out, or something like that. They're making a statement. They're glorifying themselves through the car. Well, we are to make statements about God. Making a statement is a big part of our culture here in Southern California. We're into it, big time. Our homes, our cars, our schools, all these things. We drop here, we drop there to impress people. To make a statement. But what we really need to be consumed with is to make a statement about God. We need to be making statements about God, what, what God would say or what God would do. Especially as revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another term that we might use is the term highlight. To glorify means to highlight. What do you mean by highlight? You all know what this is, right? I use this a lot. You go through and you see some words on a page and you put a strike through that with this yellow pen and it strikes, it sticks right out at you. We're being called upon to highlight God. To highlight His thoughts in our life to highlight his actions to highlight his character to underline it to draw a box around it 
but to set it out so that people can see it through us. And through us, they look at God and they're, and they're amazed at what they're seeing. In God, not in us. Another term that we use is being impressed. We like to do things to impress people, don't we? The clothes we wear. Sometimes people go in sort of reverse. They try to dress in such a way that they're making us to making an impression. We're into being impressed. University of Southern California won the national championship. How often do we bring that up and talk about it? We're impressed with the team. We're impressed with the coach. Great team. Great coach. When those planes swoop down over a stadium from the military, it just sends goosebumps down your spine because you're impressed with the military power and might of the United States of America. But what we're being called upon to do is to glorify God, to be impressed with God. And to help others be impressed with God. Who He is. What He has done. Specifically, with who the Son is. And what the Son has done and said. Now all of these terms, which are part of our everyday culture help move this idea of glorifying God and the glory of God out of the arena of the religious and putting it where we live. Making statements, impressing others. We just need to realize that the statements we need to be making are about God. We need to be impressing others about God. But all of these catchy phrases... Or no phrases. Because of sin, man who was created to glorify God has come far short of glorifying God. The catchy phrases won't get it. But that doesn't mean God isn't being glorified. We may not be doing our job. But it doesn't mean God isn't being glorified. Take Psalm 19, for instance. In Psalm 19, it tells about something that is glorifying God day in and day out. And it's the heavens. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. The heavens make a statement about God, about the power, the wisdom, and the magnificence of the nature of God. Go out some evening and look up and try to count the the stars, the Scripture says. And you'll soon realize... How great and vast and big and immense and powerful and all-knowing and all-wise your God is. In the Old Testament, we read about God making His presence felt among His people through a brilliant, radiant, burning light called the Shekinah glory, or referred to as the Shekinah glory. It is the visible indication of God's presence, and it impressed, it impressed the people who saw it. To the point that they realize this is not someone you want to mess with. We can understand those terms. God is not someone you want to play games with. He's someone you need to take very seriously. A God of absolute perfection, holiness, and righteousness. In the Old Testament, we also read that God used His works and His words to highlight His holy name. To declare His glory. 
However, in the Old Testament teaching about the Messiah, and in the New Testament presentation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God, no one takes center stage in the history of mankind and in the history of revealing the glory of God like the Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the glory of God. The only begotten Son of God, who being in the closest and most intimate relationship with His Father in heaven, has come to this earth for the sole purpose of declaring God, of revealing His glory. He came to this earth to make a statement, friends, not about riches, not about the things that we would associate with making a statement, but a statement about God. A statement that this God that we look to is a God who is full of grace and truth because His Son was full of grace and truth. He came to make an impression. An impression about a God who, the, who would forever change the way men think about God. Up until Jesus Christ, men had ideas about God that, that were inadequate. They weren't necessarily wrong. They just weren't defined. They weren't refined. But when Jesus came, He brought God to us. He held up God before us. He glorified God in such a way that it changed the way we will think about God forever. He came to highlight in everything He did and said the mind and heart of God. And so John writes in John 1, 14 to 18, I'm just reading part of it, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Where did he get this glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it goes on to say in verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, but he, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ performed miracles, impressing upon people that he needed, that he indeed possessed the power of God. When they saw him quiet, a sea, with just his voice, they, they shrunk back and said, this is, this is God. In his confrontations with the religious aristocracy, Jesus highlighted the wisdom and the truth of God. There was no question that they asked him that he could not refute. His teaching revealed the authority of God. His transfiguration before three of His disciples revealed that even within Him was this brilliant Shekinah glory that was ready to shine through at any moment. And were it not for the veil of His body, they would have been overwhelmed and immediately destroyed. But in all of His life, His greatest statement about God, I'm speaking about Jesus, his greatest statement about God was made during the time of his suffering and his death. On the very night in which he was betrayed, he made this statement. Notice what it says. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Glorify, glorify, glorify. From the human point of view, and many of you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. The Passion of the Christ is revolting. I tried to show it the other day to a godly man, and he wouldn't even look at it. 
It was revolting display of man's sin and rebellion against God. But, from the divine point of view, the passion of the Christ declared, revealed, highlighted, and magnified the grace and truth, the mercy and justice, the power and glory, the love and holiness of God. There was no greater revelation of God's glory than at the cross. So as our Lord stood on the threshold of this hour, fully aware of what the world was going to throw at Him in just a few hours, if not moments, He prays. In John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up His eyes into heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And He's speaking here of the hour of His suffering and death. And then he says, glorify your son. Glorify your son. God is not asking here that God's name be held up and highlighted before the world. But that his name be exalted and highlighted before all the world. Why? Because everything Jesus did and said, which brought glory to God, was now going to be under attack. The world was going to kill God's Messiah and Savior and denounce Him as what? A fraud. A phony. Nothing He claimed or said in His life would now be given any credibility because they killed Him. And certainly you can't kill God. And so Jesus is praying. And He's concerned. that God may be glorified. But if God doesn't act to glorify Him, then God won't be glorified. To make a statement before the whole world, to impress the world in such a way that no one could ever say, who considered the facts, that He was a fraud. What could God do? To make it clear that this was no fraud and that His life had been lived according to the truth. How would God glorify him? And that takes us to the resurrection. When God raised him from the dead, Jesus was asking God to make a statement and the resurrection makes the statement. It says, everything this man said, everything this man did, everything this man stood for, is true. He glorified God. And God has glorified him. God would answer his prayer. We read in Romans 1 verse 4, He was declared to be the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection of the dead. But then Jesus continues in John 17 and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? That your Son also may glorify you. Now wait a second. We're talking here future. What's going on? Clearly Jesus is thinking of all he did and said which brought glory to God and which would be brought or declared fraudulent if his body was left in the tomb. But I believe Jesus was thinking of not just what he had done and said in the past. I believe at this point, and there's a subjunctive here which has the idea of a potential, a future, he was thinking about the future. He was thinking about his and his father's glory on this earth once he left this earth and ascended into his presence 
He was thinking about those who would be proclaiming His works and His words because they saw Him alive from the dead. He was thinking about those who would believe on Him because of them. He was thinking about the glory of God once He left this world and entered into the presence of God Himself. And so He continues in verse 2. And He says, and this is how I would translate this because I believe the word as there leaves some things open and I'm taking this in a causal way. I would translate it, Inasmuch as you have given Him authority, that is, power over all flesh, that is, you've given Him authority, He's talking about Himself, and He's speaking to His Father, Inasmuch as you have given Him authority over all flesh, authority to judge and cast into hell, but especially authority and power that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Framed by our Lord's burden for the glory of God are His words about eternal life. He brings up this subject of eternal life. Where does this come from? It seems to be connected to the idea that, that the Son may also glorify you. And He's thinking future inasmuch as you've given the Son the authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as you've given Him. What does this have to do with glorifying God? That's what I'm thinking about all week long. Framed by our Lord's burden. The glory of God are His words about eternal life. And what is the connection? To take a hold of eternal life is to become preoccupied. Or if you will, take a hold of the glory of God. They go hand in hand. Let's see if we can explain that. Eternal life. This is a phrase that occurs often in John's Gospel. We meet this term over and over and over again. Fundamentally, it means if you ask somebody what's eternal life, my dad always used to say these things when I'd ask a question. He says, well, it's life that's eternal. You're right. Fundamentally, it refers to life that is eternal. That's what eternal life is. It's God's life. If it's eternal, however, it's God's life. It's life that goes on forever. That is why Jesus would say these words in John 11. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And, and this is the critical verse, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Physical life will end. We know that. Unless we happen to be part of that blessed generation that will be here when our Lord returns, physical life will end. But God will raise our bodies so that they are immortal and incorruptible, sustained by spiritual realities that we know nothing about at this time. But they're nevertheless going to be bodies, not some kind of ghost. However, once we receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus says we will never die. Our bodies will die, yes. But we won't die. We will be raised. Our bodies will die and be raised again. But we will never die. He says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. However, eternal life is more than just endless life. It's every bit that. 
And I don't want to depreciate the fact that that's what it is. But it's more than that. Like physical life, which does end. It is a life which is meant to be experienced from the very moment we receive it. A life that is full of potential. A life that is dynamic. A life that is meant to be abundant. Full of many things. You know, when I get up in the morning, I don't get up and... Am I alive? And some people, I guess, have to do that. I don't usually hang with those kind of people. Because to me, physical life is a gift from God as well. And I intend to live it to the max. I may have to do it with a cane, or crutches, or with hands bandaged, or whatever I have to do here at the church to, to do it. But I'll have it, I'm going to live it to the max. Because there's so much potential in physical life. There's so much excitement. There's so much to, to do for the Lord. I don't get out of bed and wonder if I'm alive. I get out of bed and start experiencing life. Likewise, eternal life is a life that's meant to be experienced. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And it's meant to be experienced fully. Look at all the passages which speak about eternal life in the Word of God. And you will quickly find that these passages that speak about eternal, eternal life have more to say about the quality of the life than the quantity. They have more to say about its intensiveness than its extensiveness. We're not just buying fire insurance when we believe in Jesus Christ and receive His gift of eternal life. It is that. But it's more than that. First, it is a life that is meant to be full. It is the life we enter into the moment we believe in Jesus. And it is at that moment that we begin to live the first day of a life that will never end. But, but live we shall. Not boring, but a life full of challenge, full of adventure, my favorite word. It's my password on all my old computer stuff. Full of fellowship. A life that is to be full of love and joy and peace and so on. It is a life that's meant to be full. Search out the scriptures. Get a concordance. Look up eternal life. Look at all the passages. And that's what you're going to find. Second thing, you're going to find that it's a life that's full of potential. Potential that will have eternal consequences. The potential to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and to glorify God. To hold up and highlight before the world the gospel of God. The character of God. The works of God. The words of God. The Son of God. The glory of God. Third, it's a life of promise. The promise of reward. The promise of appreciation for a life well lived. The promise of crowns that we will take with us through eternity that are given by our Lord as expressions of His love and appreciation. Fourth, Eternal life is a life that's meant to be inherited. A life we are not simply to enter, but a
the life we are to enter and lay hold of. Many people think one day I'm going to enter eternal life, meaning they're going to go to heaven and play golf or ride motorcycles. Friends, that's not what eternal life is going to be about. It may be about for that for some people, but the people that will truly get the maximum out of their life, eternal life, are those who will inherit it, who will possess it. It's a life that is meant to be spent. I heard people that tell me, they say, Arch, you just shouldn't do so much because you've only got so many heartbeats. Well, that may be, but I'm going to spend those heartbeats having some fun, being adventurous, enjoying the challenges of life. But it's like that with eternal life. It's a life that's meant to be spent, only you won't run out of heartbeats. It's a life that will be meant to be given out. And it's as you give out that you are truly receiving in fullness, joy, happiness. There are other things that we could say about eternal life, but the point is is that it's a life to be experienced, not just something we buy like a commodity. And many people become Christians and they, they believe in Christ and they receive eternal life and they think of it as sort of like this commodity, like, a, like an insurance policy that gives you some fire insurance. But that's not what it is. It is that, but it's more than that. It's an experience. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. We need to take hold of this life now and in the future. How are we going to take a hold of it? What are the building blocks of this life? I remember when I was a young boy, we used to have Wonder Bread. Now, today, that is the abomination of desolation. But in that day, we were told that Wonder Bread builds a healthy body in eight ways. What is the Wonder Bread that builds a healthy life for eternity? Jesus makes it clear right here in John 17, 3. And friends, if you haven't memorized this verse, memorize it. It's worth it. Because this sort of puts it together. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'd say after John 3.16, this is a verse you ought to memorize. That they may know you. The word for know here is a word in the Greek language that is used of a man knowing his wife. And it's not talking about getting acquainted. It's a phrase, a term that is used not only of acquiring a knowledge and facts and information, but a relationship. It's not simply a knowledge, but a relationship that is being developed here. Just as it is developed in our physical life. Knowing facts must be coupled to knowing persons. If you're going to really experience life, it's more than just being a nerd. It's relating what you've learned. 
And in eternal life, it's so much more important because the facts you're learning and who you're relating to are eternal. It is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I like the passage in 2 Corinthians 3 where it says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ, we could add, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's who's making it all happen. To know the Father and the Son, to know how they think, to know how they feel, to know how they would act, to know how they, what they want, and how they would have us to live. To know what they have purposed, to know what they want to hear and see in our innermost being. To know the truth that they want held up before the world. To know the true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And how we are to hold up, take a hold of eternal life by doing that very thing. Knowing Him so that we can glorify Him. There are no shortcuts. This is, this is a relationship that goes on the moment you trust in Christ and believe Him as your Savior. This relationship begins at that moment and continues. And it goes on and on and on. And it grows and it becomes deeper and richer and more exciting. And the more you get, the more you're able to relate. People say, well, I'm just so new at this. And I mean, I've got people in my theology study that we'll be having tonight at 6 o'clock. Anybody's welcome. But as they go through it, I hear people say, this is so different. I've, I've just never had this before. But my friend, just keep at it. And you go through it once, then you go through it again. And all of a sudden it starts coming together. And then you begin to, it's like a steamroller. You just begin to get more and more. And your relationship with God is getting richer and deeper. And the fallout of that is that as you take a hold of eternal life, you'll be taking a hold of what God has created us for. And that is to glorify Him. To live in ways that please Him. To speak those things that will highlight His character, His truth. That's what He's saying. And it becomes our all-consuming desire. It's like the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, who were certainly not any group of people to write home about. But he said, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it to make a statement about God. Do it to impress people about God. We love to impress people. We love to make statements. We love to highlight. Make God the focus of that. As the Father glorifies the Son through the resurrection, the Son also glorifies the Father. Not only through what He has said and done, but through what those who have received eternal life from Him will say and do in the age to come. And then He comes back to His point. In verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He is speaking as if the hour has passed. As if the cross has already taken place, even though it hasn't yet. But in His mind, it's over. In a moment, he will be on the cross and his last words are, it is finished. And so now he says, and now, O Father, following that, glorify me together with yourself for the glory which I had before the world was. How could anybody ever say that the Bible doesn't teach the deity of Christ? You can't read John 17 and not realize that Jesus is God. 
Jesus sees himself on the same level as God. Now, either he's a man that's out of his mind, or based on all that he did and said and honoring and glorifying God, he was who he said he was. And the resurrection makes that clear. Not only will, is he asking the Lord to raise his body from the, bed, the dead, but to bring him into his very presence and sit him at his right hand with the glory which he had before the world began. And then he's praying at the end of this prayer that we might be able to behold that glory. And for those who have experienced eternal life to its max, they're the ones that are going to look at that glory and it's going to mean so much. We're going to understand and be enriched in so many ways. Hebrews in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, made statements to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he could add at the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Philippians 2 concludes after he talks about how Jesus humbled himself and came to this earth and suffered death. It says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on those in heaven and those on the earth, and of those under the earth, even those in hell, are going to praise his name, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. We could go on. There's many scriptures that speak of these very things. But the prayer of Jesus was answered. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the instruction you give us from your word. Help us to lay hold of eternal life, to experience it in the fullest way that you've intended for us to experience it, and to become all that you want us to become in Christ, our Savior. Answer our prayers, Father, because we are so full of God, full of your thoughts, full of your mind, full of your words, of your feelings, of your future, your goals, your ambitions. Lord, we pray that you would meet us and help us to become exactly the people that you would be pleased for us to become, laying hold of that life you've given us. We long for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.